Well, good morning. Uh, Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 3. Now, I know you did notice that our New Testament reading was from Romans 1, verses 16 and 17, and that's because... Uh, we have all of our music as well as our New Testament reading was geared toward Reformation Sunday. And, uh, but our study, we're going to continue our study in Ro- uh, Ephesians chapter 3 uh, this evening. Um, when our kids were growing up, we liked to play Clue. Anybody else? A few of you? Okay, if you haven't played Clue, there were uh, basically three objects of the game, and really one object, but there were three parts to it. You had to figure out which of the six suspects committed the crime. You had to figure out which of the six weapons they used. I'm sorry, it was a murder. Uh, And then you had to figure out uh, in which of the nine rooms the murder took place. Um, Each player assumed the role of one of the six suspects and attempts to solve the crime um, by strategically moving around the game board that represented the mansion. And they were to collect clues, or we were to collect clues about the circumstances of the murder and from the other players using uh, the cards, the playing cards that were in their possession. And one of the rules of the game was when you finally thought you had it figured out when in your turn rolled around you would say I have a final guess and when you would make that guess if you were right the game was over you won and every everybody went their way but if you were wrong then you were out you had to show your cards and your possession to everybody else and then they made their adjustments and and the game continued Now, I have to admit that while uh, it was fun, it was also at times frustrating when our kids were little because one of our children, who will go nameless, uh, would make their final guess about two turns in. And so they would make their guess. The the other two siblings would get frustrated because this child was always wrong, and they would go their way after they finished, and we would continue to play. And now we look back, and we get a good laugh, and, and it's because it's kind of funny, um, but and then as they got older, of course, the games got longer because that happened less frequently. Now I start there because for centuries the Jews had to uh, had been trying to figure out the mystery of the Messiah. Who would it be? Uh, when would he arrive? And how would he deliver them? And, and what would what would his reign look like? And year after year, guesses would be made, and year after year they'd be wrong. And even when he finally arrived, it wasn't who they thought it would be. He didn't arrive like they thought he would. And he didn't deliver them like they expected him to. And his reign definitely didn't take the form they thought it should. And, and maybe the worst part of it was, was he didn't come to deliver who they thought he had come to deliver. Even though, even though the clues had been there all along, they just didn't see them. And when Paul began to proclaim that the mystery of the Messiah had been solved in the personal work of Christ and that the deliverance or salvation they were waiting for was available to both Jew and Gentiles by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from any works of the law, they threw him in jail where he wrote this letter. Now, the passage we're going to look at tonight, a passage that some say is one of the most important passages of the letter, was not only very important for the church at Ephesus, but it's also very important for churches today, and I would say particularly for us as we close out our second month of existence, which really is hard to believe, isn't it? 
So I would ask you to stand in the honor of the Word of God and the reading of it. Uh, Ephesians 3, 1 to 13. Hear now the Word of the Lord. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gifts of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am very, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. The word of the Lord. Let's, let's pray together. Well, Father, we thank you for this, your word. I'd ask that you would bless the reading and the hearing and the preaching of it. May we see Jesus. Bless us now, plant the truth deep within our hearts, and bring forth fruit. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, as I mentioned to the kids, our passage begins with the words for this reason. So we know that whatever he is about to say, whatever Paul's going to talk about, he is going to be referring back. And it would be very easy for us, based upon the content of Ephesians 1 and 2, that we could say that he's going back and going to talk about or is referring back to the entirety of those two chapters. And it would be fitting to do so. But as we read through these verses and as we talk about them and as we listen to or we, we look at his prayer next week, it's going to become a, a little apparent that he's really talking about the last half of chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. And specifically, I think it's verse 22 that spurs him on into this prayer. But what's interesting is, as again, as I've said to the kids, as he begins to pray, he breaks into this uh, explanatory parenthesis. Uh, it's as if that it's come to his mind, again, a little distracted, but, a, but distracted in a good way, not like you or me as we try to pray, and, but a, distracted in a good way because he was so um, preoccupied with the gospel. And so as he begins to express or begins to, to, to launch into this prayer, the gospel again is in the forefront of his mind. And so it's as if he wants, he, he wants to share something so that they would fully appreciate the gospel. Something that would help them understand it a little bit more. And maybe even the heart behind the prayer that he is about to pray. And so he, he, he moves into these... Uh, really a description of both himself and the gospel. And so uh, the outline is going to look like this. We're going to look at Paul's ministry. We're going to look at God's mystery. And then finally we'll look at uh, the church's or our mission. In verse 1, Paul begins with a description. And it's something that he did very often. 
Uh, and we need to pause here and just and, and make sure we understand that as we begin to look at this description, it, because it's pretty common, we know that it wasn't... Um, Paul never intended in these descriptions to draw attention to himself. Uh, his goal wasn't to say, hey, uh, before we go any further, look at me. Uh, he wasn't saying, I want, I want you to know who I am because, you know, I'm pretty awesome. He shares about who he is. It's not spiritual pride and it's not arrogance, but... He feels that one way that he can communicate the significance of the gospel, one way that he can communicate the seriousness of the gospel is to share a little bit about who he is because he wants them to understand some of the implications of the gospel Then he describes sometimes about who he is or his past experience or in this case, his current experience. So his description is really twofold. There are two facets to it. First, he describes himself in light of his circumstances... And he says there in verse 1, he's a prisoner. Now, as I mentioned earlier, uh, when Paul began to proclaim this mystery of the gospel, he found himself in prison. And so he literally, when he says he's a prisoner, he is in fact a prisoner. So first he starts with his circumstances. The next thing he describes, and through the rest of these verses, is his call. So he describes his call, and in verse 7 he says he's a minister. And so, more specifically, he had been made a minister. So, Paul hadn't uh, been sitting around for several weeks and thought, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? He wasn't sitting and contemplating, you know, if I could do anything that I wanted to do, what could I do? I'll be a minister of the gospel. He hadn't been sitting around, he hadn't taken some aptitude test and looked at his giftings and decided, you know, based on my score, I'm going to go do this. Uh, I'm going to share the news of the gospel to the Gentiles. No, he didn't do that. Paul was made a minister of the gospel by God. He said there were a lot more better qualified than him. Uh, He said that there were a lot more God could choose from, but God revealed himself to him, God had saved him, God had gifted him, he had set him apart to, to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, to proclaim that gospel to them. He said that the mystery of the gospel had been revealed to him, and he was to go and to share that. He was to be a good steward of that. It was his responsibility to go, and not only to preach and proclaim, but also to serve them. That word minister, to serve them. And we've talked about already that service was through preaching, teaching, but also in loving them and laboring for them, alongside them, and laboring to them. And that's nothing new for us. We, we talked about that in chapter 1. It's a description that we've heard before, but I want you to notice something this time in, in regards to this. Notice that his call determined the interpretation of his circumstances. Okay? Notice that his call determined the interpretation of his circumstances. Back in verse 1, he said he was a prisoner. And you were all going, well, wait a minute. You skipped a pretty significant adjective and and a description of what that meant to be a prisoner. Well, this is why. He said, I'm a prisoner for Christ on behalf of you Gentiles. So though he had been imprisoned because the Jews didn't like his message, the message had actually been very, very, very beneficial for the, for the Gentiles. So he's saying the imprison, or imprisonment was worth it. He's going to say in 13, I'm suffering for you. 
And so that suffering was worth it. Whatever, whatever negative experiences he was having, whatever his circumstances were, he was looking through the lens of his call and rightly interpreting those circumstances. So he was able to say, look, everything's worth it. Christ is worth it. Your salvation as Gentiles is worth it. My suffering is worth it. It was all a part of God's providential plan of redemption. And so it makes it all worthwhile. And not only for their redemption, but for the redemption of the nations. So again, he, he viewed his circumstances of imprisonment and suffering through that lens. And so his, his call determined how he would interpret those circumstances. Now in light of that, I want to ask a few questions for us to consider. I want to, to think. Because we, like Paul, have all been saved by grace, through faith, grace alone, Reformation, right? Grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And so we all find ourselves in that same position. And it's God's will for us to be sanctified. That's His desire for us. He, he wants us to become, to, to move in the direction of becoming who we've been declared to be in Christ. And as we read in uh, chapter 1. He, he wants us, He's declared us holy and blameless. And so He desires for us to, to move in that direction, to be sanctified and to become holy and blameless. To be, as, he, as Paul says in Romans 8, to be conformed into the image of His Son. That's His will for us. So here are the questions in light of that. Does the truth, does that truth determine how you, how I, how we interpret our circumstances is does who we are in Christ help us interpret our circumstances do we see our circumstances in a way that we understand that God uses them for our sanctification do we look through that lens and see our our circumstances and say we, we can trust and it and it's worth it because there's a very good possibility that the Lord could use those circumstances and me being in those circumstances and how I handle those circumstances for His glory and the good of my good and the good of others and really for their salvation. And are we willing to live in light of the gospel and proclaim the gospel to others, not just when things are going well, but when things really stink? Do we approach life as if everything, as if each and every experience is, is a means by which God and His grace might be put on display? Is our call, uh, I, just, I, this has just been in the back of my mind since John preached, does our call to live sent, is that a lens through which we see our circumstances? Does it change our perspective. Well, what Paul was specifically speaking about when he was referring him, he also referred to himself as having been given a stewardship. But what was that ministry specifically, and what was he given a uh, what was he given to be a good steward of? What was it that caused him to be willing to suffer and to see his circumstances in that way? And the answer is, of course, the gospel. 
But here in chapter 3, the, the first part of 3, he uses the word mystery four times to describe that gospel. And the question, of course, is why would he do that? Well, as I mentioned, as we began, for generations, the Jews had, had heard about and had been waiting for the promised Messiah. It was something that um, they were waiting for. They had heard of this seed of Eve. Uh, they had heard of the seed of Abraham and And they knew that through that seed they would be blessed and really all of the nations would be blessed. And so they were anticipating who that might be. But it wasn't just who that might be or when that might be, but how. How is that going to take place? And and we know we've we've read as we've studied, you know, we're most of us we've we have guests, but you know, most of us Presbyterians, you know, we've looked back and we've read and we see that picture from beginning to end of redemptive history and and so we know that the, the signs had been given. We know that um, that through his divine providence that he had pointed ahead through types and shadows and through the prophets and he had fully revealed how it was all going to happen. And it's not just a Presbyterian thing. I'm just saying it's just something that we kind of take pride in sometimes. We've got to be careful of. But Paul says God had finally revealed the mystery. The mystery had been revealed. He, God had revealed it to the apostles of which He was one. So His having... Having had that revealed, he was now to, his ministry was to reveal it to the Gentiles. He was to, to, part, to let them know specifically that the Messiah had come. The Messiah had come. Salvation was available again by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And, but along with that, that mystery, that mystery was that the Messiah had come and salvation was available to both Jew and Gentile. Again, this is what got him in trouble. It was, it, was, it was for both Jew and Gentile. So the mystery was and is that by grace, through faith, in Christ, Gentiles are fellow heirs with Jews. They are, we learned in chapter 2, a new people. It is one new people. Uh, they together were members of the household of God. They together were, were members of the same body. They together were partakers of the same promise. That promise that included a seed, a land, and and a people. That promise that included the pouring out of the Spirit. That promise was for Gentiles and their children just as it was for Jews and their children. The mystery revealed. The bottom line was, Paul speaks of this, these riches of Christ, and the riches of Christ are so abundant that they are available to any and all who call upon His name. And, and brothers and sisters, what a blessing that the same remains true today. The same remains true today. We can... I'm going to do it. We can make our final guess, Right? Jesus Christ by the cross for sinners like you and me. It's always been the plan. It's always been an unfolding plan. And it's always been an inclusive plan. Always. 
One Savior, one plan of salvation, one people made up of anyone and everyone who will humble themselves, repent of their sins, and turn to Christ. It can't be earned. It can't be merited. It's not about our work. It's about Christ's work on our behalf. It's not about what we can do. It's what He has done for us. We are. We are. Fellow heirs. We are fellow heirs. We are co-heirs with Christ and with one another. We, We too are members of the same body, His church. We too are partakers of the same promise. And so are our children. And that's good news. And that's why Paul is... That's why he had to pause. He had to pause and say it. Because it was foundational to what he was about to pray. So that brings us to the churches or our mission. You know, as Paul has been doing throughout this letter, he, he speaks a very significant or writes and, or says a, a very significant truth. And then he follows up with implications. Um, in this case, we have another so that. And that so that is found in verse 10. He says, So that the church, the manifold wisdom of God, might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And what does that mean? And there are three things that we need to, I need to define a little bit, and I did a little bit with the kids, but we need to define this before we move on. And, and one is this, again, manifold carries the idea of something beautiful, like a beautiful... A beautifully colored and woven tapestry. You can see, so there was a lady at Farmer's Market all summer um, that pulled up and she was usually two or three booths down and she had some of the most multicolored woven uh, things I've ever seen. I think some were hats. Um, but but that, that idea, when you look at something and you see all those colors, but you see just how they, they're interwoven with each other and you can see kind of how they were put together. Uh, two, the wisdom of God refers to is what we've been talking about, the mystery that He's just explained. And In other words, God's wisdom was and is on display in the ordaining and the orchestrating of His plan of redemption of a people. His wisdom is seen uh, as, as He knits together people from every tribe and nation and language. And, and as He does that, and, and as, as what He's doing is being accomplished through the person and work of Christ, who, by the way, Paul calls the wisdom of God back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, God and His wisdom is put on display. Okay, so that's the wisdom of God. And, and three... Uh, The rulers and authorities in the heavenly places refer to angelic beings in general, but specifically, I believe, the host or the hostile powers of Satan uh, in particular, as is the case in Ephesians chapter 6. Okay? Now, now hang with me, and, and here's what I think he's doing. I believe Paul is saying that the mystery has been revealed that Gentiles have been made fellow heirs, members and partakers of the promise 
so that the church, which is made up of every tribe, nation, and tongue, every background, every uh, marital status, every uh, educational or socioeconomic level, or any, uh, whatever vocational choice, whatever background you want to include. He's done that so that they might be put on display and he might put Christ on display for the powers of Satan, for those spiritual forces to see. And I, and I want to use an application to help, help explain what I'm talking about. We're going to see this more clearly in chapter 6. So I don't want to steal any thunder, but that's March. So hang in there. Um, (laughs) In Ephesians 6, we learn that Satan is a deceiver, he's an accuser, he's a tempter, among other things, and we learn that also in in the names and how he's described throughout the Gospels. Um, And the rulers and authorities uh, that do his bidding are in the business of deceiving and accusing and threatening and tempting us. That's what they do. And so they try to deceive us into believing that we're not loved, and we're not chosen, and we're not redeemed, and we're not adopted by God um, in and through the Lord Jesus Christ and sealed by His Spirit. They, would, they, they want us to doubt that. Um, they try to accuse us, telling us as if we're still in our sins and that our sins are too great to be forgiven. They tell us uh, and they try to condemn us because of our sin. They try also to tempt us into buy into the world system of idolatry and to seek to find our identities through that worldly system and, and to find our identities in our jobs and our achievements and our mer- uh, material and even uh, our material possessions and even in our marriages. Uh, to find our, our status, you know, our identities and our status uh, as well as in fleshly and temporary uh, pleasures. They want us to strive after those things. They, they tempt us to try to comfort ourselves by controlling everyone and everything around us. They tempt us to gather into our little exclusive groups, whether that be social or cultural or ethnic or socioeconomic or political, so that we remain segregated and look for our community in other places than where He has ordained for us to find our identity in our community and, and day in and day out I don't know about you but day in and day out that's a, that's an, it's just an onslaught just, it seems like sometimes every minute of every day it's one thing or another and so we've got to find some sort of safety and security somewhere where is that? Christ and His church. Christ and His church. And so each week, we gather, and we, in Paul's words, we come and we gather confidently and boldly because we have confident and bold access to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we come into this place and we come to worship Because we are in Christ. We come because we come through Christ. And we come by the Spirit. And we come by faith. That was what the Reformation was all about. And when we gather every week, 
the beauty and brilliance of God. The beauty and brilliance of God's wisdom is put on display. The beauty and brilliance of God's plan of salvation is put on display. The beauty and brilliance of Christ and His work on our behalf is on display through the beauty and diversity of this congregation. When we gather in this place... One people from all walks of life, from varying experiences, social and political convictions, cultural and educational, socioeconomic and vocational backgrounds, people from different tribes and nations and tongues, working or worshiping together. And when we gather, we remind ourselves and each other of the truth of that gospel through both the content and the structure of our liturgy. And as we do that, we proclaim to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places that we don't believe their lies, we don't believe their accusations, we don't bow to their threats, and we're not going to take their bait. And, and when we fail, and we listen to those things, and, and we fall prey to their garbage, what do we do? We repent. And we hear, as Chris described, we hear the assurance of our pardon. And we recenter ourselves on the gospel. And we remind ourselves and encourage those around us in this group that we're going to rest in the gospel. We're going to reject any condemnation Satan may want us to feel because in Christ, what? He's just said it. We're fellow heirs. We're members of the same body. We're, we're members of Christ's body. And we're partakers of a promise. And God keeps His promises. And sadly, many today, many today wor- attend worship services that are man-centered and for God. And all of this that I just described is lost. They miss out. And what actually takes place is what C.S. Lewis calls a liturgic fidget, a liturgical fidget. The ever-changing brightenings and lightnings and lengthenings and abridgments and simplifications and complications of the service. And in the end, worship becomes nothing more than entertainment. And, and listen, and, and, what's, and what should break our hearts is that those spiritual and heavenly, you know, the, 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 the adversary and his minions, they sit back and laugh because they're doing just what they want them to do. And that, again, that should break our hearts. And instead, worship should be God-centered and for us. And so, even though, in the words of Joe Rigby, who's a professor at Bethlehem University and Seminary, he said, even though people may visit and see a gaggle of odd people half-finished and have difficulty connecting the high biblical language of Ephesians like the body of Christ and temple of God with the actual people in the chairs. 
Because our voices are out of tune, we wear funny clothes, we can't sit still, and our faith many times is weak. And even though the apparent incongruity may be an obstacle to them and may be from time to time an obstacle for us, creating disillusionment, right? creating the question, can this really be the people of God? Am I really His is, is this us? The reality is, yes. Yes, we are. And that's Paul's point. And we, in our worship, put God's manifold wisdom on display, proclaiming that that is exactly the fact, that that is, in fact, true. We're His bride, we're His, His body, and all to the praise of His glorious grace. All to the praise of His glorious grace. And may that be so each and every week here in the weeks, months, and years ahead as we move into our third month. May God be glorified and Jesus exalted. Let's pray together.